the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond behind the mic in the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio. Tom is here as always. Tom. Good morning. Still struggling with the Tom Allen intro. Which you'd think he'd have something gathered together at this point. You you would would think. think. Yeah, no, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. Trey Price is still here with us. Uh, If you heard the episode that Trey did on corn diseases, Tom and then me in the background for moral support, we're recording these the same day. So it's good to see you, I guess, again, Trey. Good to still be here. We're glad you stuck around a little bit longer. We didn't chase you out of here after the first and Well, we have to be efficient. Trey, it just brings it. Do you have all the appropriate forms on file to be here with us? Absolutely. To travel out of state? Of course. Okay. Just Absolutely. Che- just checking. That's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> no, it's a thing. No, I know it is. Yeah, this is just this is just a day trip, so there hopefully there won't be any expenses. Funny thing is, when we go to Baton Rouge, we drive through Mississippi anyway. We don't have to fill out any forms for that. So, <laughs> you might want to keep that on the down low. I never thought about that. Yeah, when we were in Baton Rouge and we drive drive to Winsboro, we always yeah never thought about that. It's the best way to get there. It takes an extra hour if you take the river route. Oh, that's just a scenic drive. I mean, that's, it's nice. Uh, some it's 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 good to go through there certain times of the year because you can see a lot of different crops and jump out and. Not Check if you things. not if you're wanting to get from point A to point B in a hurry. This though. is true. This is true. Well, and the listeners should just know. <clears throat> excuse me, frog in my throat. The listeners should just know we maximized some wet field days to make sure that we could get Trey here to record some plant pathology content. Because yeah. I'm a little giggly to have a, another plant pathologist in the crop doctor's studio. No, man, I think it's cool. I, I think it's a, been an underserved. <laughs> is that a, is that a good word? Do I need to edit that out? No, I think that's a really good word because I I try not to talk too much about it, but it's fascinating whenever you stick something on the crop situation blog related to plant pathology, it the numbers pretty much skyrocket. It it is an underserved discipline and seems to be one that not only do people struggle with there's a tremendous number of questions associated That's with That's because it. it's all voodoo. Yes, I've heard that before. <laughs> Stop, what, you call it voodoo, and Angus calls it smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors, voodoo. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of that. Toss-up between those two. We talked about corn on the previous episode. Today we're going to get into some soybean stuff. Before we do that, Trey, what's your stance on garden gnomes? Uh, against against they, okay. they, they creep me out you come strongly against strongly or just against. just stay over there against well you know you can do what you want to in your own yard but don't bring one around my yard good answer tom garden gnomes i hadn't spent much time thinking about that driving up and down the road but i would probably be somewhere in the middle i'm not necessarily for them not against them not going to run right out and buy one i think they're <laughs> creepy <personally. laughs> some of them are very creepy you know how you have these little podcast things these little phrases that you've working into the conversation that only a handful of people know that you're doing that like circle back yeah that (laughs) i had a buddy that went to school with he had a goal of working garden gnomes into a conversation with people that he didn't know you can imagine the looks that he would get i think we did that at the 2008 rtwg and we tried to work the four horsemen 
No, that was figure four leg lock that I got <laughs> into my presentation. That's right. Know. And you I did. couldn't have told you what year it was, but I think it was the two thousand and eight RTW. Good Lord, man. How can you remember that? San Diego, California. Well, it was the first major meeting that I went to working at Mississippi State University that had rice as the major commodity. And I remember rooming with you, which was a fascinating perspective on life in general. And San Diego, California, then was a great backdrop for all that. But it was phenomenal because you actually worked that phrase in there in at least the first two minutes. I could tell you were trying to get it out of the way. But it worked. <laughs> it did. It worked. I can't remember how you worked it in there, I don't but either. you did work it in there quite nicely. I need to get into that RTWG. I need to get on that mailing list. Well, well just so <laughs> happens <laughs> you know a guy. I can hook you up. This is my seventh season in Rice. I, you know, it's probably about time I should do that. Well, he more than likely can make that happen probably by the close of business today. We are going to spend a little bit of time discussing taproot decline today because I certainly think that not only is it a new disease, but it seems to be one of those diseases that we continue to get some really good questions about. And our listeners should start out knowing that We've got a long way to go to address some of the concerns that revolve around that particular disease. And usually as I spend time thinking about it and try to collect my thoughts before I make presentations on taproot decline is to try to mention that things in the plant pathology world and managing plant diseases don't typically occur overnight, which makes it really difficult to talk about that. But those of us that are and I would say not new, but those of us that have been around in our particular positions at our respective university have gotten together and worked on taproot decline as a group, and that would be those of us at Mississippi State University, at the LSU Ag Center, University of Arkansas, and we have added in some additional entities. Ed Sikora at Auburn University has been pretty helpful. Heather Kelly at Tennessee's kind of gotten on board with that because they have some instances of that particular disease. But that'll at least just give you an idea of who's really involved at this point in working on that. But Trey was instrumental in publishing what was considered to be the first report. Uh, and we have done some, uh, some additional work. And I won't continue to talk too much because I'll let Trey talk about that. But that's something he's been real instrumental in and has done a yeoman's job at, at doing some good research down there in, at LSU on that particular disease. It's been fun working with uh, everybody across state lines with this, with this disease. Any, anytime anything's new, it's fun. I mean, everything you're doing is new with it. And uh, as long if you can do that and, and solve problems for, for growers at the same time, it's, um, that's what it's all about. That and Teddy, you know, I can't speak highly highly enough of Teddy Garcia. He he's a PhD student down in in Baton Rouge, co-advised by myself and Vincent Doyle. And Teddy and Vincent have done a, a really great job characterizing that that uh, that pathogen, and actually got a chance to name it Zylaria necrophora. And uh, not many people get to do that in their entire career, so it's pretty special. Well, it's special to those of us that are plant pathologists. Most listeners probably will scratch their head and wonder why it's special. <laughs> um, it's For those of you that didn't notice, Trey dropped a big Latin word, too, just like Tom does. So it's not unique to Tom Allen. No, it seems to be unique to the plant pathology discipline in general. Do they have to come up with a new genus, too, or is it just a, 
an existing genus, a new species. It's an existing genus with very few pathogens in it and with a new species. It's a novel species. The interesting part about it is that pathogens, according to um, samples from from herbaria, from the, I think it goes back as far as the 1930s, nearly 100 years ago, uh, that pathogen was in Louisiana uh, nearly 100 years ago. So Yeah, and I think Teddy indicated there were several different herbaria specimens that he looked at from places as far away as Florida. South maybe. Florida, and they, they actually got a, uh, during a, a conference in the Caribbean, they got uh, an isolate of the same species off the island of uh, St. Martinique, so in the Caribbean. So. so what were those on in the herbarium? They would have been fruiting st- for reproductive structures of the fungus. But what, what host? Yeah. I oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> several different ones. Uh, the one that sticks out to me is sugar cane. Okay. The, the pathogen can, can function as a saprophyte or, or a parasite. So that genus is known as wood, wood rotters. So there's a lot of different, most of those species are, they just consume dead organic material and, and complete their life. They're mushrooms, essentially. And in the <laughs> plant pathology world, the main disease that's caused by a species of Xylaria would be a disease of apple. And I think it's like something apple dieback, if I'm not mistaken. So it's rare for organisms within that genus to actually negatively impact a plant that's actually growing in the field. And certainly then if you'd consider that, you're talking about the difference between what would be an annual and a Mm -hmm. perennial in that instance too. And that's pretty important and certainly was something that I think we struggled with in the beginning. We have this weed species that we've been dealing with the last two or three years, and Tom and I have talked about it quite a bit. And it's been here, and now we, for some reason we can't kill it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it's been here, and now it's in the fields. Either way, we can't kill it. And it's not, it's not a resistance issue, but that's a podcast for a different day. But with this particular pathogen, if it's been in Louisiana for a hundred years, was it on soybeans and we just didn't know it, or did it something happen that all of a sudden it likes soybeans? To put that in a simplified weed science, don't know for sure. At, at some point, we, uh, you know, I guess at this point we can assume that it changed its, the the pathogen changed its lifestyle from from saprophyte to pathogen, or it gained the ability to be a, a pathogen. And I don't know if. Tom had this idea years ago. I don't know if he's willing to share it. You can delete it if you want. But if you think about the landscape before we had annual crops growing in the in the Delta and you know mid southern United States, you know what what was all this land? It was, it was swamps. It was forest for the most part. And there are and I had this thought in the uh, I actually had one of those shower epiphanies this morning, and I was like, well, you know, there are a lot of trees that are legumes too. So you know maybe 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 the pathogen started on a leguminous tree and then ended up on soybean somehow. I, you know some of these fields you can find logs that have been buried underneath the soil for God knows how long that could have harbored it. Other other possibilities are are, are seed borne. Very minor report of of xylaria of species of xylaria being isolated from soybean seed. And it was soybean seed from Ethiopia, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. was not soybean seed that even originated in this country. There's also a match as far as the genetics of the pathogen found on rice in China. That stuff's fascinating. 
you know, if it's here and then so did we do something different? And, and I think the, you know, the bottom land hardwood swamp explanation is as good as anything because for sure the majority of this land before it was drained, before the levee system, I mean, we farmed some of it, but a l- majority of it was still, you know, wooded. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the weed world, you take prickly cider or teaweed, for instance. I mean, we've had prickly cider forever. But then with Extend, it all of a sudden became a problem. And they were here. We were just killing them with other stuff. And then we changed our herbicide use pattern a little bit. And then this one species has proliferated and become one of the main things. So that's I guess that was my initial could, question was, was there something that changed in our production, you know, modern agriculture over the last 30 years that... Host genetics, yeah. I, would, I would guess. Okay. Um, that's just shooting from the hip, though. That's one of the major changes we've had. I would say past. host genetics, and then we've probably also changed the main tillage strategy that we've employed in this part of the world. Yep. So what you're saying, Tom, is that's a little bit of a shift in the disease pyramid. And you worked that in two <laughs> podcasts in it again. I can see that you're going to beat me over the head with that. <laughs> I'm not beating you over the head with it. That's a legitimate interjection into a plant pathology conversation. I'd like to point out that's from a weed scientist as well, which I makes me smile a little that's, bit more. Yeah, it's kind of impressive, actually. It is. No, but I, I was saying, I, I think in some cases, and this is certainly something we've discussed as plant pathologists in the more recent past as related to taproot decline, is if you think about now how we farm, everything has moved towards a more precise system. We're doing everything with GPS, so we're running the same AB line, we're bedding up in the same spot. We've reduced tillage. So in most instances, we may just be moving back through that field and rehipping on the same bed structure between seasons. And then if we drop in there and use one of these more precise brand new vacuum planters, where's that seed going in that planted furrow between years? It's likely going in the exact, exact same, same spot. spot. Yep. So now you have an organism that apparently likes to grow on residue, which could either be a soybean residue or it could survive as a saprophyte on some other woody structure underground. Uh, And I could talk about that a little bit more later, but we have observed this organism growing on residue of other crops. Teddy has indicated he's seen it growing on corn residue. I've recovered it on cotton residue. If you talk about woody, Mm-hmm. Cotton's as woody as anything we have, row crop wise, and that's woodier. Even. There, there's also been at least one graduate student that looked at rotational strategies or potential of rotational hosts supporting this particular organism. When you inoculate the organism into pots and then you grow those plants in those pots, the hard part has been it doesn't look like you get the same foliar symptom expression that you do in soybean. If you're growing something like rice, corn, cotton, and I can't remember what what Hope Renfro also had in her. She may have had grain sorghum in there. She could get that organism to reproduce on roots, but she couldn't necessarily get the same foliar expression of those symptoms associated with taproot decline. For soybeans, say continuous soybeans, you think the fungus is surviving on the rotting roots and then we come in with the precision planting system where we're going back onto the same bed or 
within inches of the same bed, so the same seed furrow, and then we're putting new seed in proximity to that rotting root from last year, and then that's causing the problem. Is that an oversimplification of it, or is that accurate? I, I yeah, think that's accurate. accurate. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what we've discussed. We see the, the, the most problematic fields, the ones where you see pretty incredible yield loss are the ones that are soybean following soybean for uh, at least two seasons. And it seems like the more you get, the further you go out with soybean monoculture, uh, the higher that inoculum load is. And, and if you have a, a variety out there that's particularly susceptible, it can be it can be catastrophic in some cases. Whole field or big patches or how does it show up? There's some data out of Arkansas that su- suggests that it's uh, has a it's clustered, you know, in, in patches. But I can't pick that up just just being on the ground and walking around in the field. It seems like when you have when you have a problem, it's going to be pretty much field wide at varying levels. And, and some of that work, Terry Spurlock's done that at Arkansas, mm-hmm. yeah. and he's really implemented the use of of drone technology to take some imagery from above the field, and then overlay yield monitor maps in that to really compare what he sees with the drone and how that may influence yield across a much larger landscape within that particular field setting. But you ask Jason, you know, whole field, typically when we see it from a ground level, we're talking about three to five to seven plants in a row or in a small little clustered area that may be exhibiting those particular symptoms, which in the case of taproot decline tend to be severe intervenal chlorosis when you get to advanced reproductive growth stages, and when I say advanced, pretty beyond R5. Now, the hard part about that is if you know what you're looking for and you can spend a good bit of time, and when I say when you can spend a good bit of time because I know that consultants listening to this, and this is a conversation I have with them pretty regularly, if I have to tell you to get down on your hands and knees and spend a lot of time looking for something, they can't do that. Just based on the number of fields that they have to look at within a given day, they're on a general route. They can't do that. When Trey and I go to a field, we can get on our hands and knees and try to focus on, you know, forest for the trees type conversation, the Henry David Thoreau moments. Right. Hey, is that plant affected? Is that one affected? And once you start picking one or two out, you really can make the distinction as to, I think that plant has it there. Then when you gently remove it from the soil profile and look at the roots and how they look, and being as if this is a root-based disease, you're typically looking at roots that will be black. And being as it, we already talked about the fact that this is a wood rotter, those roots will appear rotted, but it's a dry rot. So the, the root that's affected is going to be brittle, and you pretty much can break it off. So you've got to be careful to remove that plant gently from the soil profile. Because if you pull it out roughly, you're going to break the root off. And that's not what's going to happen in a healthy, non-infected soybean plant. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the pattern. So not patchy. So not, you know, a disease where you see, all right, this is a small area in the field, twice as big as my truck. But if I'm walking down the row, I may see an infected plant several healthy plants and then a, maybe two or three infected plants and then a area. So basically am I what amounts to reducing stand late in the year or reducing productive stand? I guess the best way to visualize it, and I, I 
go over this in grower meetings all the time. That the first thing you're going to see, the first thing the grower is going to notice is the soybeans turning yellow before it's time, right? So you have that intervenal chlorosis and necrosis. And you, if you walk out to those spots that have that foliar symptom, you can park the canopy and look down and you'll see soybeans that have died earlier in the year. So you kind of have a focal point within that furrow where those soybeans have died and then adjacent on either side of that going up and down the row, you'll have plants that have foliar symptoms and then you'll have plants that are healthy depending on where where those debris focal points are in that furrow. So if I you've got, got you. infested I'm, debris, you can have overlaps when it gets really bad and you can have plants that are dead as a hammer that are that hit our stages and just and, and, and in that case out. it could get into a patchy yeah. pattern if you had enough inoculum there yeah and, and you depend a lot of times water and rains will push debris towards a certain end of the field and they, they might harbor the pathogen more isolates or infected propagules or however you want to say it may be in, in a particular area of a field but uh it's the the pathogen can kill plants at any stage you know i, I see seedling disease due to area and it's, it's taproot decline and you just have to know the first thing you need to do when you when you think you have taproot decline is look down in that canopy and, and get your knife or if you have a shovel or something dig up some plants and look at the roots and they'll be blackened like tom mentioned you can take your knife and split that crown uh, inside that crown more often than not you'll have some white cottony looking growth in the pith and the intervenal chlorosis can be it can be confused with uh, eight or nine different things in, in my neck of the woods. We've observed this disease for a long time, and we called it mystery disease or, or uh, misdiagnosis, black root rot. But that intervenal chlorosis can be so so many different things that I think it, more often than not, taproot decline went unnoticed. And they just said, oh, I got SDS. Well, in Louisiana, SDS is exceedingly rare compared to the taproot decline distribution. So... And the other thing about the intervenal chlorosis, the pattern for taproot decline when compared to sudden death syndrome or, or, or southern blight or something like that, the pattern's more tight. You can see more definition of the veins with, with taproot decline, and it, it seems to be a little more mild on some plants. So, And where I've ended up looking at them, you know, rare occasion, but the occasion that I end up in a field, then Tom ultimately identifies it as taproot decline we've been there because of a nutrient deficiency yep i can't remember which one which one is it tom I'm, i don't remember i, I would almost manganese ma- yeah i'd say manganese oh. has been one that lots of people have called me about as well you know i've ended up there for that with bobby or mm-hmm. you know whoever else and then it ends up being you know something else it, because the pattern doesn't match up a nutrient deficiency generally is going to follow the texture mm-hmm. in the field, soil texture in the field, depending on the nutrient. And then this is not that from what y'all are describing. It's going to be more random. Right. And unless you walk into one of those really severe fields and then there are a lot more affected plants. But you're still talking about a small cluster of two to five to seven plants within a row in general Yeah. Mm-hmm. that have that so then what general are we, symptom. No treatment then, right? After it's there, it's there. Yeah, once once it shows up in the field, there's nothing you can really do about it. You know, hopefully it won't be the losses won't be won't be horrible. But it's, we're looking into seed treatments, seed treatment options, and and infer fungicide applications 
right now, but we we don't have enough data to really have any solid suggestions, as they call it here. I mean, I, I still call it recommendations, but there are some materials out there that have shown some promise, in particular the the infer fungicide treatments. So, that, looking at that, as far as management goes, the, the two best options we have right now are, are crop rotation. You know, even though in the in greenhouse studies and we see and we see the pathogen growing on corn, dead corn stalks or dead grain sorghum stalks or dead cotton stalks, I haven't seen any any evidence that that pathogen is pathogenic to to those crops in the field. So, rotation is always a good agronomic practice. We I've got a, a long term study at the Macon Ridge Station where uh, we just do one to one rotations with soybean, uh, cotton, corn, grain sorghum, and we show a significantly less taproot decline incidence in the in the uh, rotated crops. So rotation and tillage. A lot of a lot of people don't want to get into tillage, but anything you can do to disturb that debris, or even if you just even if you could adjust your your GPS, or how you line up with the rows, move over two or three inches or something like that, where you're not putting putting that seed right back next to that infested debris. That's a possibility. I definitely need more data on that as far as seed placement goes. But um, we've got, we're teaming up with uh, Mississippi State and University of Arkansas and putting in a, a gigantic variety screening trial at Macon Ridge. We'll take all the OVT entries from, from LSU and the ones that aren't common from Mississippi State and the and, and University of Arkansas and just have a long list of varieties that are that are grown in the Mid-South. We'll plant that trial and inoculate, so we'll we'll ensure disease. And the field has a history of disease there; it hasn't been tilled in, oh my gosh, seven or eight years. And we've grown soybeans on it as long as I can remember. So, the pathogen is there. There's going to be we're going to challenge those varieties, go through and rate it multiple times, and I'll release the LSU uh, data on an annual basis from now on, just like you would any other disease ratings for. Cosper blight or, or, or frog eye leaf spot or anything like that. Well, that's good. It sounds like y'all are really increasing the body of information that's available on it. It's, it's a pretty cool deal. I've always heard Tom talk about it and, you know, rode in the truck with him at times and even looked at some with him. Yeah, the biggest question is, you know, I find myself scratching my head all the time. You know, why? why? You know, why, why did this organism decide it wanted to, to be pathogenic? Well, and, you know, I, years ago, when I was frustrated about this and had a conversation with some colleagues up up north about soliciting some help, I picked up the phone and called Ken Roy. And Ken Roy was was the main plant pathologist that did the initial work on sudden death syndrome, which would have been back, if I'm not mistaken, 70s or 80s. And Ken and I discussed, okay, if this is a species of Xylaria, do you recall running across Xylaria in any of the however many culture plates that you looked at? And Ken said no. And that, I mean, listeners aren't going to understand that, but Xylaria is is a pretty unique organism when growing in culture. I don't understand that. And even in the field, it will produce these fruiting structures that they call dead man's fingers. And then lots of other consultants have their own names for them. I think Hank Jones calls them fuzzy fingers. Chris Ward, actually. Okay, Chris Ward. <laughs> my, my apologies. <laughs> oh, but they right. look like little fingers sticking out of the soil around infested debris, and that'll typically occur when there's plenty of moisture. So right back to Jason's comment about the disease pyramid, 
and you can see that then after the middles lap, and of course your humidity is down there and the temperature changes, and that tends to follow instances then, as Trey said, you can see some dead plants. You'll see those dead man's fingers around those dead plants. If you're lucky enough to get the organism growing in microbiological media in the laboratory, you can get those dead man's fingers growing. The problem with them is they're sterile. So if you cut them out of the media and you drop it onto another plate, and that's typically what plant pathologists do. It's a lot of work with fungal organisms. Things grow with the reproducibility of that organism. If it's sterile, it's not going to grow. So even if Ken had run across it back 30, 40 plus years ago, and it didn't grow on a plate, he would have just thrown it out. It would have been considered a saprophyte at that point. It wasn't the main organism that was causing an issue, and it certainly isn't related to the species of Fusarium that causes sudden death syndrome. That's kind of a long way around the rabbit hole to address your your comment there, Jason. I'm glad you circled back to the dead man's fingers. I knew we were missing something. Well, as usual, we would definitely like to thank our listeners uh, we thank Trey Price for being here. Thank you for having me. And if you need us, if you have any questions about the content, if you want to make some comments about that, we definitely appreciate those. Those certainly keep us going. This is something we really enjoy doing, uh, and we're definitely increasing our content and hope that we can continue to bring, you know, really good information out as the row crop season comes to us. Uh, with that in mind, if you need us for anything, for any one-on-one questions, please feel free to track us down. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.